Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of What's the Crack? My name's Elle and today I'm interviewing Mitchell Gomez, the Executive Director of DanceSafe, a public health organisation promoting health and safety within the nightlife and electronic music community. In today's episode, Mitchell and I find out what's the crack with DanceSafe and their drug testing in the nightlife community, the current climate of adulterated drugs, and what's the crack with opioids in the US. I hope you enjoy the episode and remember to follow us on Twitter at WhatTheCrackPod or email us on What'sTheCrackPodcast at gmail.com. Enjoy! Mitchell, could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and what DanceSafe is, please? Uh, yeah, so I'm the executive director of DanceSafe. Uh, DanceSafe is a U.S.-based public health nonprofit. We do a lot of things, uh, almost all of them sort of focused in the electronic music, uh, nightlife, festival community. Uh, the, the name of that community seems to be constantly evolving, but that's the, the, the general idea. Uh, and yeah, so we're a public health nonprofit. We do a lot of things. We give out uh, free condoms, free earplugs, free non-biased drug information, uh, but the thing we're really known for is we were the first non-governmental agency that was doing on-site reagent drug testing. Um, so where we would actually set up and people would bring us their substances and we would chemically analyze them. Uh, so there were a few governmental agencies that beat us to the punch, uh, but we were the first nonprofit that was that was doing this. Great, thank you. And what does your role as executive director involve? Uh, yeah, so I, I still try to remain uh, heavily involved in actually going on outreach and providing outreach services. I think it's really important that you constantly engage with the community that you're serving. Um, but I also oversee our staff, our uh, volunteers, our uh, our interns. I mean, a, a lot of it is overseeing staff who oversees that we're, we're tiered up, right? <laughs> um, uh, but also sort of being a full-time professional drug nerd is a large part of my job. So researching new substances that are starting to show up on both the dark web and then uh, they generally show up on the dark web first and then we start seeing them at festivals uh, four to six months later. Uh, fundraising, uh, figuring out how we're going to pay for all of this fun stuff uh, and and uh, just sort of uh, community advocacy for harm reduction, for uh, rational drug policy. Uh, I sit on the advisory council of Symposia, which is a media and events group that does sort of psychedelic storytelling. Um, and yeah, uh, all, all that fun stuff. And and speaking also, doing interviews and uh, going to festivals and speaking at festivals is a, a large part of what takes up my time. 
Yes, that sounds awesome. I'm actually intrigued with the Darknet stuff because I used to do a project on the Darknet and I also found that that was the first place where new drugs came. Is there a specific drug that you can give an example of uh, that you found on the Darknet and then saw in the nightlife community four to six months later? Yeah, I mean, N-ethylpentalone was was definitely showing up on the dark web almost a year out. Um, and now it's become, particularly in the U.S., it's become sort of the main thing that we see right now being sold uh, as Molly other than MDMA. MDMA is actually making up the majority of the, the market share right now, which is quite unusual for it to be the, the clear majority. Um, but among the cathinones, uh, for a long time, it was all uh, methylone and ethylone. I think you guys say methylone. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so... Uh, no, I, I think we say methylone, actually. Oh, you do? All right, excellent, excellent. Um, perfect. Um, but yeah, so we're starting to see N-ethylpentalone show up uh, really widely right now. Uh, the DEA is reporting that it's the sort of most seized cathinone. So when they look at like border seizures, uh, that's the one that is showing up the most right now. Uh, we're seeing it at festivals all over the country, but particularly on the East Coast. Um and so, yeah, that's a, a good example of one that we were sort of able to uh, try to stay ahead of the curve a little bit. Although I have to admit that I was a little caught off guard by just how problematic that one has proven. The the substitute cathinones in general have not been uh, as euphoric as MDMA, but they haven't been sort of these like nightmare chemicals like 2,5-IN bomb, which just like kills people all over the place. Um, but N-ethylpentalone, unfortunately, seems to be one of the ones that is really causing a lot of a lot of issues uh, globally. I mean, not just not just here. Yeah, absolutely. Because some of the issues that we came across was the fact that they are cheaper, yet we or we don't know any data or research on the on substituted cathinones. So we actually don't know a lot about these drugs, how long they take to kick in, long-term damage, etc. Um, but my next question is... So you mentioned the on-site reagent drug testing in the nightlife community. Could you talk us through what that involves, please? Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, the way the service is provided has has changed over time. Uh, originally, there was sort of a push to try to uh, really sort of push the issue in the court of public opinion. Uh, it was done in a way that was very, very open, giant banners that said, you know, free ecstasy pill testing. Um the whole idea being that uh, if we could actually get law enforcement to come in and arrest somebody, then you could take it to the court of public opinion. You can really get a lot of media coverage around this. Uh, by and large, we have found that law enforcement has no interest in shutting down these services. Um, they generally understand harm reduction. They understand that you're providing a public health service. And so now uh, the the relationship is not, uh, not as uh, acrimonious as it was, uh, you know, 15 years ago. So we generally negotiate with a promoter. We uh, end up often near medical or in vendor row. It sort of depends on the promoter and how comfortable they are. Uh, we set up two booths. So there's a, a forward facing booth and then a sort of more private testing booth. Um, people come to the booth for all sorts of reasons. They come there because uh, we're selling awesome hats and t-shirts for supporters. Um, they come there because they're interested in volunteering. They want to get drug information off of the literature rack, uh, earplugs. But if they do come for the testing, we we have them come into the secondary booth just so that nobody ever is is in public pulling illegal drugs out of their pocket. I think it's important that you keep that sort of in a way that it's not going to be in anyone's face, that they feel like they have to do something about it. Uh, the person takes tiny, tiny little scrapings off of a pill or tiny amounts of powder out of their baggie. 
uh, places it on a chemically inert surface. Uh, ceramic plates are best, but there's a lot of options. But anything that is not going to react with the, the chemicals. Um, and then these reagent tests basically are droppers of liquid that break down the chemicals and there's color changes. And if those color changes of multiple reagents match up with a known substance on our color chart, um, you know that it's a drug that is, it, it, it contains a drug that's in that very, very close to that substance. Now, these are presumptive identification, which basically means you can say that a sample is definitely not substance A, and you can say that it is almost certainly substance B, but you can't say that it is substance B. So there's probabilities with, with these things. Um, it's definitely not as effective as uh, GCMS or FTIR, stuff like the Loop uses in, in the UK. That's that's a, a more advanced technology. Um, but reagent testing is very, very fast. Uh, if you use multiple reagents, it's quite accurate. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really sort of useful harm reduction service. That being said, we are trying to buy an FTIR this year, which is what the Loop uses. Um, and so we are hopeful that we'll have an FTIR soon. But even when you have an FTIR, uh, harm reduction organizations are still using reagent testing quite often, particularly for LSD, which is active at such a small dose that often it doesn't pick up on, on these sort of more advanced technologies, but does react with reagent testing. Yes, that was actually my follow-up question because um, I did some volunteering for The Loop, which we spoke about with um, Henry Fisher in a previous episode. And when we received plant matter, such as mushrooms or cannabis, we couldn't test it for obvious reasons. I was just wondering if there's any other drugs in the nightlife community that you've come across that you couldn't test. Yeah, I mean, mushroom mushroom matter, like actual, uh, you know, fungal bodies, like the actual mushrooms. Um, are quite quite difficult to test, unfortunately. Uh, certainly when something has been put on, like if a drop of uh, supposed LSD has been put on a candy, it can be almost impossible to test it, right? You don't even know where on the candy the liquid was placed. Um, it, you don't know if it's there enough to react. You got to sort of chisel away at the candy. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and so, yeah, there are things that are difficult to test, unfortunately. Uh, but even if somebody comes to the booth and what they have in their pocket is something that you can't test for, there's still the opportunity to educate them about the risks about, you know, hey, like the reason we can't test this is, you know, X, Y, or Z. And in the future, if you want to avoid that, you know, here are some some steps you can take. And so there are still advantages to offering testing services, even when the thing the person is bringing to you is something that can't be can't be tested. Yeah, absolutely. And it's bringing those people in for that contact with services and for harm reduction. What's the info? What is the information given back to the people who use your service? Do you tell them it's A or B, or that it's not A or B, but it could be C or D? Yeah, so it really depends on reagent testing. Um, if something tests the same, the way that you would expect MDMA to test on eight different reagents, you can say with a very high degree of certainty that there is MDMA in that sample. Now you ha you have to caveat that with that doesn't mean that it's only MDMA. That doesn't mean that it's pure MDMA. Um, that doesn't mean that it is with 100% certainty MDMA, but with all eight reagents, it's a very high degree of certainty. I don't want to put a hard number on it, but it's very, very, very unlikely that there's anything out there that would test identical to MDMA on all eight of the reagents that we currently use for on-site testing. Um, but yeah, the, the, the messaging of that doesn't mean that this is pure MDMA is really important because people often think that they often think that, oh, the reagents changed really quickly. So that means that it's really pure uh, the reality is ambient air temperature has as much to do with reagent speed as 
the you know purity of the of a substance um you know when it's very very cold outside the reagents react quite slowly um and that's important to know it's important to message that and that people understand that uh and so yeah that's sort of how the messaging goes and then in addition to your that sort of like what your substance is messaging uh there's also messaging that happens around sort of health and safety tips for that substance so even if a sample is mdma uh, or or we're, we have a very high degree of confidence that it's MDMA, uh, that certainly doesn't mean that it's safe. And no dance safe volunteer would ever say, like, this is okay or this is safe. It's, it's you know, this was a positive reaction for an MDMA-like substance. People have died off of taking MDMA, particularly in hot environments when they don't drink enough water and electrolytes. It increases the risk of heat stroke. And so it's important to message that even if a sample is what a person thought it was, it's important to message like health and safety tips around that substance, um, particularly with MDMA. MDMA in particular is uh, potentially dangerous in hot environments if people don't drink enough water, if they don't drink electrolytes, if they don't take the time to cool down. I mean, there have been quite a few deaths from from people doing uh, doing what turned out to be MDMA in uh, sort of, I don't want to say inappropriate, but in, in hot environments. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why having people on site is great because you have that communication link. My question is, have you had any negative media or comments about dancers for having these harm reduction facilities? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that historically that was an issue. It seems like Lately, almost all of the media we've talked to has been incredibly supportive, has been even even things like Fox News have done very sort of positive harm reduction stories. Um, I think harm reduction is a pretty easy uh, it's a pretty easy model to message even to conservative voters. Right. The idea that the government should not actively be making people's lives more dangerous is a conservative position to take or it's one that's supportable from both conservative and liberal uh, you know, positions. Uh, that being said, uh, there, you know, historically the DEA once took out a full page advertisement in the Miami Herald saying the only way to dance safe is to dance sober. Uh, that was timed for a conference that we were doing in Miami. It was clearly directly messaged towards us. Uh, so, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, the criticisms of harm reduction tend to come more from, uh, you know, Facebook comments and Twitter feeds and and not so much from the media right now, which is interesting. I think it's interesting that there's been this change. Um, but, you know, we're starting to talk in this country about safe injection facilities. Uh, needle exchanges are operating everywhere. And if somebody's giving out clean needles to use, you know, either intramuscular or intravenous opiates, at that point, on-site reagent drug testing is like far less controversial in my mind. Uh, and and needle exchanges are often funded by county governments or state governments. And so, yeah, I feel like the conversation around harm reduction has changed quite a bit in the last 10 years. Uh, and now with fentanyl showing up in not just heroin, but showing up in cocaine and showing up on blotter paper and showing up all over the place. Well, it's car fentanyl on blotter, but fentanyl and fentanyl analog showing up everywhere. Um, the ability to test for those is is critically important for anyone who uses substances. And so it's really the conversation has really changed because of this sort of spread of microgram or milligram active opioid drugs being just showing up everywhere in everything. 
and yeah, so I, I don't think the, the media freak out is as much of a concern as it was. I mean, I've seen some of the media around your guys' drug trafficking services, uh, and it reminds me a lot of the media that we were seeing, you know, five or 10 years ago, which is weird because in a lot of ways, your drug policy is far more progressive than ours. Yeah, it's interesting. There's um, been quite a lot of support, including police at festivals. I think looking at the argument that it would popularise drugs is interesting because testing drugs doesn't really affect the ease of access from a dealer. You still have to cross the barrier of getting it. Plus, putting that aside, it's, it keeps people safe. It's, it's harm reduction. Yeah, I, so that that criticism is one that we hear a lot sort of from individuals. The idea that, oh, if you provide drug checking services, that's going to increase use. Um, and I think it's important to sort of deconstruct that. I think that that's such a common criticism that it's important to to know the sort of the response to that. And I think the response to that is twofold. Um, the first is that drugs don't need advertisements. They they are they are intrinsically popular, and it seems like no matter what society does, uh, people are still going to use substances. And the ultimate proof of that is the fact that drug use happens in maximum security prisons. You, you cannot take a security apparatus any further than a maximum security prison. And if drug use is still happening under those conditions, then the idea that a promoter or a nightclub owner could somehow keep drugs out of, out of their venue is instantly revealed as just absurd. Um, they're not allowed to do cavity searches, right? And even when you can do cavity searches, you're still not stopping substance use. But I think the other side of that is that even if that is true on individual case-by-case bases, even if there are individual users who say, oh, now that I can test my substances, I'm more comfortable taking them, whereas if I couldn't do that, maybe I wouldn't take this. I don't find that to be a compelling reason to not provide these services from a population perspective. Because if you have 1% more people using substances and 30% less hospital transports and deaths, that's a net win. And that's that's okay if that 1% happens to be using substances that wouldn't be using it before. Uh, and so I, I, I frankly don't care about how many people are using drugs. I just don't. What I care about is how many people are ending up in the hospital, how many people are dying, how many people are contracting diseases because of uh, you know sharing straws or sharing needles. Those are the things I care about. And so if we can reduce those numbers, even if you end up with more people using substances, if the number of people having adverse medical problems goes down, then we should still be pursuing those policies, no matter what those policies are. Yeah, absolutely. It's keeping people safe and knowing how to look after yourself when you take these substances and minimize the risk. Because you're taking a massive risk when you don't know what's in a drug and you don't know what you're taking. It's, it's an absolute risk. Um, so my next question is, because you've mentioned the opioids and fentanyl, I saw on your website that you sell, sell fentanyl strips. Since the opioid crisis in America, have sales for the fentanyl strips gone up? And have the harm reduction advice that you give adapt to the climate and drugs of concern in America? So the the fentanyl strips are a relatively new thing. They're something that uh, we actually... Uh, so these strips were developed by a company for detecting fentanyl in urine. So they're basically for use uh, testing people, right? Testing people for substance use. And we had heard for a while that users were using these strips to test baggies of heroin to detect if they had fentanyl in them. And I was personally incredibly skeptical that that would work. I did not think that was uh, at all possible that these strips would work. My understanding of them was that they were testing for drug metabolites. Um, and so we actually helped organize and fund a study uh, to look at whether or not these strips would work the way that they were being used. 
Uh, and I wasn't actively looking to like disprove it, but I was personally very skeptical that that this worked. Uh, and I was wrong. I was much to my much to my surprise. I was completely wrong. They actually work uh, incredibly well. They're actually far more sensitive than uh, a biological active dose. So there can be a, a sub psychoactive dose of fentanyl in a baggie, and the test strips will still discover them. Um, but the strips are new. We've only been selling those for um, maybe half a year, maybe eight months at this point. Um, but they were uh, – the demand for them was incredibly high. Uh, we've actually – the manufacturers actually had trouble keeping up with demand at, at certain points. There's been peak times when they've been, they've been running out of the strips. Uh, and so clearly people are very interested in determining if what they're consuming contains fentanyl. Now, that being said, we're certainly not the only people who offer these strips. Uh, and lots of nonprofit organizations, particularly needle exchanges, have been getting grants to buy these strips, to use them at needle exchanges, to give them out to opiate users. So it's hard to know the total number of strips that are being distributed in the United States. But I would be shocked if it's not in the hundreds of thousands per month. Uh, not not our sales, but, uh, you know, total use of these strips is widely popular, incredibly, incredibly high demand for knowing whether or not there is fentanyl in whatever you're consuming, even even heroin users who. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. are sort of the traditional uh we have not done a lot of services with that population because we're we're working in festivals and nightlife communities and there's not a lot of sort of opiate open opiate use within that community yeah absolutely what would you say are the drugs uh, that people are concerned about at the moment what I'm getting at is that in the UK, there's a lot of concern around the purity of pills. So a decade or so ago, the pills you would get would be around, what, 80 uh, uh, milligrams, whereas now it could be up to 240. I just I just wondered, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, 220 or 320 or 350. I really would like to know why someone over... It's it's clearly coming out of, like, that... that Not not the UK. These are clearly being pressed in, in Belgium and Holland. And But I'd really like to know who in Belgium is like, why are you pressing 350 milligram pills? If anyone out there wants to email me anonymously explaining this, um, my, my email is very easy to find. And I really am very curious about why this is happening. Um, because yeah, I mean, 80, 80 to 120 was standard for most of the history of, of black market MDMA use. Um, and so, yeah, the fact that we're now seeing pills that are two to three times that strength and we're seeing them here as well, just less often, they're the same pills. I mean, it's not like we're seeing a different group also pressing pills that strength. We're seeing the same, the Teslas and the Red Bulls and the weird shapes and the glossy coatings. I mean, they're clearly the same, the same pills are showing up here as well. Um, but the primary concern in the U.S. really is still misrepresentation. It's 2,5-IN bomb being laid on paper and sold as as acid. Uh, it's N-ethylpentalone and other substituted cathinones being sold as molly. Uh, it's deschloroketamine and 3-methoxy-PCP being sold as ketamine. Um, there have been sort of major disruptions within the ketamine market, and ketamine has become quite difficult to find in some parts of the United States. And so we've seen a, a huge increase in dissociative uh, analogs being sold as ketamine. Uh, and so it really is still mostly a concern, not about adulteration or uh, high dosing, but really a concern about misrepresentation is still sort of the primary issue we have uh, in the United States. Great. I see from your website as well that you have different chapters of Dunsafe. How how would you set up a chapter? Is it top down or bottom up? Uh, very much bottom up. So the chapters are really uh, sort of independent harm reduction orga uh, organizations. They're groups of volunteers that have gone through our training and decided they want to set up a chapter. Uh, we support them both logistically and financially when they're first starting. But the chapters run very independently because we philosophically believe that harm reduction works best when it's peer education. We are never going to know from our, our, our national office in Denver, we're never going to know a local scene as well as local members of that community are going to know it. Um, and so we really do think that it has to be bottom up for it to be effective. And so the way the chapter is organized is by people asking to get involved. They often act as recruiters within their uh, within their local community. Uh, my employee, Kristen, is a complete rock star about getting them trained and getting them set up. And she's really very, very good at helping them sort of self-organize in a way that makes sense. Um, we often select now the sort of original chapter leadership to help the chapter sort of get off the ground. But that original leadership always knows going in that once the chapter is functional, the chapter itself is going to choose its leadership. We are not going to dictate that from our, our distant location. We're not going to try to control them. Um, and chapters have a huge amount of autonomy. Some chapters do testing at every event they're at. They won't go to events where they're not doing testing. Um, some chapters are perfectly happy to set up uh, just providing information. Um, that's actually our stance at national as well. If there's a major event that wants us there just providing information, but they're not comfortable with drug checking, we're happy to be there just providing information and water. We're not going to tell them that we have to do testing if they want us on site. Uh, but yeah, the chapters sort of grow spontaneously out of a local community's need, out of their desire to have it, um, from individuals choosing to sort of 
get trained and our training is all online now. So it's actually quite easy to get trained as a dance aid volunteer. Um, and we have people internationally who take the training as well, but our chapters are only in the United States. We, we, we have partner organizations. If somebody from another country wants to set up a similar organization, we're happy to help them with logistics and figuring out messaging around testing, which is quite important. You know, how you talk about testing is very, very important, both from a liability perspective and from a public health perspective. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 super bottom up. Um, and actually, our our New Mexico chapter uh, is the newest chapter, and they're going to be launching uh, this weekend. There's a festival happening, so we have national representation going to help them because it's a pretty large festival for a brand new chapter to handle. So when there's events that are too big for a chapter, or a chapter is really new and they've never done an event this size, we're happy to send help and send support. Um, but yeah, as of this weekend, we'll have our, our newest chapter in New Mexico set up, and we have several others throughout the United States that are launching very soon as well. So constantly growing, constantly expanding, uh, trying to sort of service as many people as, as we can. Um, but yeah, always looking for more volunteers. If anyone in the U.S. is listening, <laughs> you, know, you can hop on our website and get trained. And if anyone in the U.K. wants to learn how to sort of provide harm reduction services in a very bottom-up sort of renegade way, um, our training, I think, is a very good start for for that as well. Okay, great. So what is the future for Dunsafe? I, I think big goals can distract from the, the core mission, um, you know, big, big out there goals. Uh, I certainly think continuing to develop the drug testing technology, getting an FTIR, maybe eventually having GCMS in a box truck like they do at Boom Festival um, is super important. I think it's important to continue to develop drug checking technology because the drug market is continually evolving. It's continually changing. Um, I think it's also important for not just DanceSafe, for every harm reduction organization to be open and honest about the fact that most of these harms are being created not by the drugs, but by government policy. So a lot of this is drug harm reduction, but most of it is actually drug prohibition harm reduction. It's things that we have to do simply because the black market is not regulated. And so uh, talking more about policy, being more involved in policy changes, pushing for decriminalization, legalization, regulation of drug markets, I think is a super important part of the mission for any harm reduction organization. Um, but also continually figuring out new ways to support our chapters, to support the growth of harm reduction as a movement, both in the U.S. and internationally. Uh, I've often joked that I'll be comfortable retiring when drugs are legal and regulated throughout the world. No, not to, not to set goals too high or anything, right? Um, but if you want big picture goals, there's my big picture goals for harm reduction is when every drug user knows the risks of what they're taking because their substances are coming from a legal regulated market and drug education is based on uh, fact and and science instead of propaganda and fear. Um, I think those are the the sort of big picture goals. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, my final question is that you almost answered on your own is... If you were given a golden ticket for one drug policy to be implemented immediately, what would you choose and why? Or, on the flip side, what one drug policy would you remove and why? Ooh, that's a big one. Um, yeah, I think. Oh, so I think I think that if you immediately legalized and had a regulated supply for all drugs overnight, 
I think it would scare people so badly that you might burn down society. So I'm I, that I, that would be my one if I could do it without burning down society is the overnight creation of legal regulated drug markets. But barring that, I think a good intermediate step uh, is that we should be pushing for the decriminalization of personal possession of all drugs, because at a very sort of base level, I just philosophically believe that human beings have a have a a civil right to alter their consciousness in any way that they see fit. I think that that is a fundamental human right. Uh, and so removing criminal penalties just for personal possession or use of all drugs, um, I think would be a good intermediate step towards the creation of legal regulated markets. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I guess that's sort of my, my uh, convoluted answer to your question. I love it. I accept it. I will give you the golden ticket. Excellent. Great. Well, is there anything else you would like to plug? Um, I think if we're going to plug one thing, we have a, a, the Dance Safe online training is getting ready to launch in a new version. So version 1.0 has been operational for quite a while now, but version 2.0 will be will be finished soon. Um, as soon as that is finished, you will not be able to miss it on social media. And I really do encourage anyone who is interested in harm reduction, who is a current or former substance user, or who has friends who are substance users, regardless of what those substances are, uh, I think that the best way to sort of push these larger policy goals is to prove that substance users can be a responsible, self-regulating community. And so the more people we have who are trained in harm reduction, who understand how this works, who understand these principles, uh, the less adverse medical incidents and deaths we'll have within the community. Uh, the less deaths we have within the community, the less media hysteria there is around drug use, and the better it is for everyone, whether you're a substance user or not. Uh, and so, yeah, I think as soon as that new training is online, I really encourage everyone to go through it, whether or not you intend to actually volunteer with DanceSafe, uh, and and see what you get out of it, and see if you find uh, find pathways forward for your own use or for your uh, for what you can provide to the community. Awesome! Thanks so much for the interview. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. And that was the interview with Mitchell Gomez. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, if you're in the States or based internationally yet want to know more about DanceSafe and their harm reduction work, check out DanceSafe's website simply at dancesafe.org. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 